Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here, and I can only say you are in luck because Tom Sowell is my guest. Tom Sowell, one of the most important thinkers of the last half century in the Western world, is a fellow. Let's see, what is the official title? Yeah, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Every one of his books is a masterpiece of clarity, research, persuasion, and the undoing of the dominant thinking of our academic class. So Tom Sowell's latest book is Social Justice Fallacies. This is what the uh, flap says. The quest for social justice is a powerful crusade of our time with an appeal to many different people for many different reasons. But those who use the same words do not always present the same meanings. Clarifying those meanings is the first step toward finding out what we agree on and disagree on. From there, it is largely a question of what the facts are. That's right, what the facts are. That's Tom Sowell's middle name. Tom, what the facts are, Sowell. Social justice fallacies. Tom Sowell, it is, uh, it is a delight. It is great to have you on. Oh, it's good to be back with you, Dennis. Thank you. Uh, on a totally non-political, non-social, non-profound note, how is your photography going? It has gone. I've uh, been uh, uh, tied up with many uh, medical things and stuff like that. And uh, so one of the oh. things I'm talking to now that the book is finished is getting out and taking some pictures. Oh, good, good, good to hear. Okay, so uh, first of all, on social justice, let me just bounce an idea off you because this is one of the benefits of my work. I can bounce off my ideas off the people I most admire. Uh, I have always found the term social justice as undermining justice. Either there's justice or there's injustice. But once you attach an adjective to the word justice, you have changed the, the entire meaning. Is, is that fair? Oh, absolutely. I wish, I, I wish, my goodness, I wish so many other people understood that. But but the people seem to think that this is, is 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 something you add to it. No, it's something that you subtract from it. It's no longer justice. It's now policy making. And I think so much of the judicial history of the twentieth century has been a history of judges rushing in with angels fear to tread, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and 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 twisting the law to mean to mean what they want it to mean. In light of that, I'll. I'll just note to you, there is a biblical law. You cannot favor the poor in in a courtroom. It is a biblical law. It's in in the book of Exodus. That alone is, if you will, a a conflict between biblical thinking and contemporary progressive thinking. It's one of many conflicts. Uh, My gosh, Uh, the tragedy is, when they twist the law to help the poor, the net result is often that the poor are hurt by the, by, by their new interpretation. Uh, affirmative action is a classic example. Uh, out, out here in the, in the University of California at Berkeley, they had uh, the affirmative action policies, and they, and they would they would admit uh, uh, minority uh, students to play with uh, standards that were lower than the other students. And the, and the student and the majority of the minority students failed to graduate, so they would come in there, waste years of their life, and leave with nothing. Uh, people talk about the harm done to uh, groups such as the Asians and the Jews and so forth. All that is perfectly legitimate. What they what 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 they also need to know: this hurts blacks who are admitted more so than it hurts the other people who are qualified and were not admitted, uh, because. The other people will go to their second choice. They will they will succeed and go on in life. When the people that they admitted in their place come in and then flunk out, they have nothing, and they wasted all all that time. And they picked up a lot of silly notions from the wokeness that is taught instead of uh, other things. God, 
you, you'll love this story. I, I met a, a strapping young man, about 30, really good-looking guy, tall. Kent comes over to me at the Philadelphia airport, says, hey, I just want you to know I love your work. My I thanked him so much. I detected a tiny accent. His English was perfect, but I detected a tiny accent. I asked, where are you from? He said, Norway. I said, really, Norway? You're you're a conservative in Norway? And he said, I don't know if I'm conservative. I I, I just follow common sense. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that perfect? It it, it is. I mean, you see, one of the reasons I think that the intellectuals reject common sense is precisely because it's common. And their whole life is dominated by the fact. Oh, what a great point. What a great point. <laughs> That's right. I never thought of that. Oh, my gosh. Go, go on. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, think, I think back to one of the great tra- tragedies of the 1930s was that the intellectuals got the idea that disarmament was the way to, to, to avoid war. And, of course, that was not a view shared by Germany, Italy, and Japan. Uh, and so they made themselves needlessly uh, uh, vulnerable, uh, even though their industrial capacity was greater than that of Germany, Italy, and, and, and Japan. But, but they brought on this very war. Uh, but, but the idea that, that this was something that should be tested against some fact or counter-argument that's that's what's really chilling when you when you study these kinds of things. They they simply dismiss other people with some ad hominem remark, and that's the end of it. That's right. So why why do you think the collapse of the intellectual world took place? I know this is a gigantic question, uh, but do you have a theory on why? Uh, I'll be. Blunt. I assume if you're a professor in any social studies arena or any what they what they call political science, sociology, anthropology, English, in other words, not STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. Mm-hmm. I assume you're you probably are. I assume you're a fool. I, I, am I being too harsh? Uh, in, in a sense, in a sense, you're you're, you're absolutely right. In other sense. They are, they are enormously competent within some narrow area, and they have their Nobel Prizes, they have their PhDs and stuff, stuff like that, and it gives them a, a feeling that they're omnicompetent. And I, I, I've never understood why, for example, uh, 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 international grandmasters in chess don't do that. Uh, musical prodigies don't do that. But people who have <laughs> academic credentials do that all the time. And that that is a puzzle to me. Another, another great point. <laughs> All right, so let's go to your book. So here, here, for example, even accurate statistics on income, on income trends over time, can be grossly misleading. When turnover is the proverbial eight hundred pound gorilla in the room that no one seems to notice. Internal Revenue Service data show. That over a 23-year period, there were 4,584 people in the so-called top 400 income recipients. More than two-thirds of those people were in that bracket for just one year out of those 23 years. Why is that turnover point important? Because, for one thing, they're, they're attributing the amount of money received by, 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 uh, by 4,000 people to 400 people. So that, that automatically is a tenfold exaggeration of, of income disparities. Uh, but, but in addition to that, uh, the question uh, that might, might arise is, uh, why is it that all these supposedly rich people are not are rich one time, only one year, that all of them are rich and the next year they're not rich? Uh, and and I, I, I think the answer might well be that the, the, the incomes of those people for those years was not their annual income. It was a capital gain over a period of year, over a period of years that got cashed out that year. And the next year, they don't have another uh, uh, business to sell or whatever it is that they're doing, and, they, and they're gone. Uh, but, I, but even if that's not, not, not the case, all the, uh, all the data, not not just on the top 400 income people, proceed, proceeds on the assumption that there's a top 
that is on the, that's in the top 10% as a class in an ongoing uh, time period. Whereas mm-hmm. in 20, mm-hmm. most of the people who are in the top 10% today will not be in the top 10% uh, 10 years from right. now. Well, another, okay. The book is Social Justice Fallacies. Thomas Sold. It is up at DennisPrager.com. It is short and brilliant. Back in a moment. Thomas Sowell, one of the truly luminous minds of our time, and gutsy. You have to have courage to be a truth pursuer in any age at any time, but especially in the last half century. His latest book is Short and Brilliant Social Justice Fallacies. It's up at DennisPrager.com. I'm amazed that Basic Books continues to publish Tom Sowell. Even the publishing industry has been taken over by uh, censorious leftists. Social justice fallacies. I want to go back to affirmative action. And you pointed out how it hurts those it's intended purportedly to help, especially black students, many of whom, because of affirmative action, would get into a college where they couldn't keep up with the work, uh, not because of their color, just because of their preparation. I couldn't. I could not have kept up. Uh, in undergraduate, uh, or in high school, I should say, uh, with uh, the work needed to get into an illustrious college. I ended up at Brooklyn College, eventually Columbia, but I, 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 I didn't do enough work to get into uh, to, to a great graduate, uh, great undergraduate school. So it has, it's not a reflection on the person, but it is a fact. So if, in fact, affirmative action has hurt uh, blacks more than it has helped them. Why is virtually every black organization pro affirmative action? Wow, that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, I think that the the pattern I see in studying other groups in this country and in other countries around the world uh, leads me to the conclusion that that leaders of poor groups which want to get ahead are often a handicap. I think it's much easier to illustrate to show the opposite. If you if you look at groups such as Asian Americans uh, uh, in the United States today, who who were in poverty, let's say a hundred years ago, uh, and very much uh, powerless, as uh, but who've now become more prosperous than the general population, you'll be hard pressed to name even one leader of those of those people. Leaders do not produce success, except for the leaders themselves. One of the reasons is the leaders, uh, one of their key ideas is that all your problems are caused by other people. And if that is the case, why in the world should you knock yourself out and not uh, in order to get ahead knowing that these evil people are going to stop you anyway? Uh, there was there was a story that uh, President Obama made mentioned a few, a few years back, saying about this some black uh, young man who wanted to become a pilot, and he said, you know, I, I thought at first that I would join the Air Force uh, and become a pilot, but then I realized that these white people will not let a black man become a pilot. And as of the time he said that, there was there were not only black pilots in the Air Force, there were black generals in the Air Force. But this victimhood ideology that they are teaching has done him far more harm than any racists are capable of doing to him under current conditions. Wow. Well, these are truths. Did you know that the Oregon Education Department, that's the official arm of the Oregon government, state government, in education has said that the idea that there are there is one correct answer in math is white supremacist. Have oh. you heard that? No, I hadn't, but I've heard stuff like that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's as if white people have, have copyright <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again. You, you, you blocked out for a moment. Uh, I, I, I say that the, the idea that uh, the, the, the white people have uh, copyrighted mathematics, but you know, you see, yeah, the, yeah, of it. If you go back a hundred years, 
when they were claiming that people from Southern and Eastern Europe were genetically inferior to people from Northern and Western Europe. You know, but anyone uh-huh. with any history would know uh, Western civilization began in Southern Europe, that, that the Greeks were, had right. all kinds achievements at a time when people in Britain and Scandinavia, you know, were barely able to learn uh, agriculture. Uh, and you realize the, the utter insanity to which the people with high IQs can, uh, can, can go on. It, I, it, for those of us who care about truth, everything you write is so, so clearly right and what you're saying, and, and this is not, this is not. I'm not saying this to compliment you. I'm saying this actually to indict our cultured class as not desiring to pursue truth. Again, is that an overstated accusation? No, no it's not, and it, and it, it, and it's, it's been that way for a long time. What what is different about say the 20th century is that for the first time intellectuals. Uh, acquire uh, a degree of influence that they never had before. So don't forget the, uh, uh, that as of the 19th century, there were whole nations where a vast majority of the people were illiterate. So literacy is not something we can take for granted. Uh, uh, as late as the middle of the 20th century, uh, a UN group uh, uh, estimated that, that most of the adults in Asia and Africa at that time were illiterate. Uh, so, so literacy becomes one of the things that increases the power of the intellectuals with their written words. But the, even in addition to that, you have things like radio, television, the Internet. They, they have a vast audience. Now uh, virtually every country wants all its people to be uh, literate. And so they and, – and the completely autocratic uh, governments that were common for centuries have been democratized at least to some extent. Uh, and so now the, this is the, the intellectual great chance to, to make their uh, ideas felt. And they've done it. And they've, and they've created, I would say, most of the right. man-made disasters of the 20th century. Genocide. Oh, yeah. Let's let's continue with that in a moment. Uh, I want to remind everybody, the book is Social Justice Fallacies, Thomas Sowell, the unique Thomas Sowell, I might add. Tom Sowell. I'm afraid to keep praising him because I don't want to embarrass him, but uh, he's he's gifted with a clarity a combination of the two C's, clarity and courage, both of which are necessary. We're talking about his book, Social Justice Fallacies, Thomas Sowell. By the way, his writing is so clear, you, you, you don't need any academic background to understand what he's writing. He, and he probably doesn't use the word matrix. <laughs> Or, 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 wait, I'm not done. Or intersectional. Oh, my. <laughs> he actually writes in English. <laughs> not, in, not in the new language of the academic world. I, so I pose this very depressing question to you that I want to explore it further. Uh, you're, the academic world, which... Uh, Basically, you're you're a part of, but you're you're an outlier completely. I mean, when did the pursuit of truth become insignificant? That that's it. This is a riddle for me. Well, unfortunately, uh, uh, the answer to this, as to as, as to the answer to a number of other questions, is the 1960s. This this was the era, and not just in the United States, but in much of the Western world. Uh, that people now had, had a different vision. And so all sorts of things changed for the worst. Uh, in Britain, for example, uh, Britain was famous for its uh, sportsmanship. Uh, there was some, uh, I, think it was, I think it was a soccer match with two minutes to go. And the team that was leading, the team that was behind, one guy made some spectacular play that wanted for, for his team and the members of the other teams applauded. 
uh, that uh, that is not the thing the way that the British uh, fans or, or players act today. They are considered a scourge whenever they engage in international uh, soccer uh, because of the bad behavior of both the fans and the players. And it took it took a long time to make make to create this social degeneracy. So yes, so the the reason that I'm puzzled because I agree with every word you said is they didn't come ex nihilo. They, meaning my generation, the baby boomers, the 60s generation. So there had to be something that helped make this generation as as anti-truth and anti-social as they became. Isn't that fair to say? So it predates the 1960s. Oh, the, 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 the intellectuals were this way for a very long time uh, is a matter of history that uh, much of the stuff that is considered to be new stuff in the 1960s, you can read uh, William Godwin in the 1790s and find many of the same ideas that you see in Berkeley or the Ivy League right there back then. So that this, this group had this tendency all, all along, uh, but they didn't have the, the, the opportunity to get power uh, and, and, and publicity to the extent that they could in the 20th century. Not all. It was not as totally degenerate because uh, there were there were there were other people with other views. But once the the, the circumstances came together, then in, in politics and in the academic world in the 1960s, it was it was uh, they they ran away with it. So I'll ask you a question. I doubt many people who've interviewed you have asked you in, in light of all of this. So I, to the extent that I know you, I don't know you uh, as a as specifically a religious man. I don't I don't suspect I'd find you at church every Sunday. I may be wrong, and correct me if I am. So, but if I am right, it, it makes the question all the more important for me to ask you: To what extent do you believe that, uh, as it were, the the death of the Bible, the death of of the God of the West, or at least the the dying? Uh, play a role. And and I'll just give you one example that that I often cite in speeches. Uh, It is only secular people who say men give birth. And of course, not all people who say that, and not not all secular people say that, obviously, but all those who say it are post-Judeo-Christian. Do you think it's fair for me to to bring that in? Let, Let me give, let me give you time, I, not that you need it, but I, I just want to promote your book before we have the break and you answer my question. Social Justice Fallacies by Thomas Sowell, and it is up at DennisPrager.com. The amount you will learn from this brief book, I mean, every page, if you underline, be prepared to underline in every paragraph. Social Justice Fallacies up at my website. Back in a moment with Thomas Sowell. Tom Soul is my guest, and his uh, brand new book is Social Justice Fallacies. It is up at DennisPrager.com. So I pose the question to you, in light of the decline in the West that you so brilliantly document in essentially all your books, by implication if not explicitly, do you think it's related to the post-Judeo-Christian, post-Biblical post-God, if you will, age in which we live? I think that religions are more than theology. They are theology, and they're also a moral code, and they differ from one religion to another in that respect. So, so I think this is not a phenomenon. I, I, think, I think that this decline in the West uh, is due to, due to a decline in the dominant moral philosophy of the West, which is based on these religions. But it's also the case in Japan that because they they have their moral standards uh, and all these sillinesses that, that plague the Western intellectuals especially uh, have not plagued Japan. In Japan, when a criminal commits a crime, they take him to court uh, and they find him guilty and they punish him. Uh, and and and, there, and it's it's hard it's hard 
uh, to get an organized uh, opposition to the dominant moral code, whether it's religion or whatever, whatever it might be. But in the in the West, uh, uh, for reasons that are not completely clear to me, uh, there's been a great a greater uh, freedom for the, for the intellectuals, and they've used their freedom to reduce the freedom of other people. That's entirely accurate. So here's another thesis of mine I'd like to bounce off you. Maybe liberty is not built into the human constitution. Maybe liberty is a value more than a human instinct. What do you think? Wow. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one, but I, I, I do believe that people want to be free. I mean, I, it, uh, and, and in fact, I think that it's uh, so important that one of the things that the early progressives tried to do and to some extent done is redefine freedom so that uh, when they, when the government uh, reduces your options, uh, they say you, you, you have more freedom now because the government will, will use their power to give you this and give you that. But, of course, that's not what freedom means. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, when Spartacus led a slave revolt in the days of the Roman Empire, it was not in order to get welfare state benefits. <laughs> right. So the, the acceptance of lockdowns is what really drew my attention. I had thought about this all of my life, but this sort of confirmed my my sad conclusion that people yearn for things, some things more than they yearn for freedom. The ease with which the government told people what to do on the basis of nothing. See, we, we all understand that if there's a fire, the government says evacuate your house, there's probably a good reason. But there was no good reason to close schools for nearly two years. All it did was harm. Sweden didn't do it, and they were fine. So that's what led me to to really double down on my belief that maybe freedom has to be taught. It is not necessarily instinctive to the human being. Well, I, although I tend toward pessimism on, on this one issue, I think uh, uh, I, I think the evidence shows otherwise. Uh, in, in, the, in the 28 years during which Berlin was was uh, divided into the communist half and the Western half. More than a hundred people were killed trying to escape from East Berlin to West Berlin. They, some, sometimes they took their whole families with them, knowing that they could be killed, and would would but they, they would take that risk. Similarly, with the boat people who fled after the communists took over South Vietnam. Uh, around the people from from uh, Cuba, who get on these unseaworthy boats, trying desperately to get across the, uh, to the ninety miles to Florida, suggest they want to be free. And as the old, it was, I think there was a song among blacks, a black spiritual saying, "What is it? Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last!" Uh, and they weren't asking for, for, for welfare state benefits. What Woodrow Wilson, among others, did was redefine freedom to mean uh, the ability of, uh, of you to have a wider economic scope, that the government would give you things, and that that would make you freer. They would redefine freedom that way, as I pointed out a few times in the book. Uh, and so it, it suggests that they have to, that they have to in, in every way, alienate you from freedom, and, and have successfully done so for many people. Uh, that uh, that suggests that people do want freedom. John Dewey, among That's his many, fasc- uh, right? Uh, Go on. John John Dewey, among his many uh, uh, expressions of contempt for, for ordinary people, was saying, you know, that uh, they they don't really care about freedom. That that they have uh, get they've in the various countries they were taking away freedom, but, uh, and and people didn't um, didn't mind it at all. He said this in 1939 after there had been a couple of decades of totalitarian dictatorships, which were favorably uh, viewed uh, by many Western intellectuals uh, prior to the uh, outbreak of World War II. 
Your answer is fascinating, and and uh, I have I have to I have to incorporate it. So what you're saying is people do cherish freedom, but the left has redefined the term. Yes, just as they have redefined the term racist, it is now racist if you oppose an all-black dormitory or an all-black graduation exercise. Oh. So people, so in 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 in, <laughs> in effect, you're saying. People are, aren't racist, but they've redefined racist. Oh, yes. My gosh. That, that re, redefinition is one of the great uh, talents of people with high IQs and, uh, and low information. <laughs> I have to remember that sentence. <laughs> Final segment coming up. Unfortunately, Social Justice Fallacies is the book. Thomas Sowell is the author and it is up at DennisPrager.com. We continue momentarily. Get to me well, time flies when you're having fun. At least I could say that for me. I, I won't speak for my guest. Tom Sowell is the guest. The book, Social Justice Fallacies. Here, here's, a, here's another example of something so few Americans know. From his book, the 2020 U.S. Census showed that Asians of Chinese, Japanese, Indian, and Korean ancestry had higher incomes than whites. Among full-time year-round male workers, Asian Indian males earned over $39,000 a year more than white male full-time year-round workers. Is this the white supremacy we hear so much about? So let's see, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Indian Americans, and Korean Americans, higher income than whites. By the way, uh, I, uh, which in and of itself the, renders the white supremacy idea somewhat uh, foolish, but uh, I am curious, do you offhand remember, how are West Africans doing, West African immigrants in the U.S.? Nigerians have been doing very well, and in fact, in a lot of programs set up for black Americans, uh, some of the Nigerians and other, other Africans are, are sometimes outnumber the American blacks, even though for whom the programs were set up. Huh. But in, and in average income, are they around what whites make? Do they sometimes exceed it? Are they usually below it? Do you, do you happen to remember? I don't remember the exact numbers, but they certainly were well, well ahead of, uh, of American-born uh, uh, blacks. Uh, and, and by the way, this, this pattern is also found in, in uh, Britain, where among, among poor people uh, uh, in Britain, in education, uh, the, 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 the black students who are from foreign countries are ahead of the white students in passing the test in, in, in the British educational system. Amazing. Again, so. yeah, the, the, your books are uh, an ode to the saying, the, the truth shall set you free. Well, keep writing for many years. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for everything you've done. For half a century. Social Justice Fallacies is the book. Tom Sowell is the author. I'm Dennis Prager. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. The question of Americans getting meaner is one we'll return to. I, I have a, an important book and author now. The book came out yesterday. It's always exciting. Liz Wheeler may be well known to you, may not be, but she's she should be known to you. She's a political commentary and podcaster, 
political commentator and podcaster, The Liz Wheeler Show. The book is Hide Your Children. <laughs> Talk about Americans getting angrier. That's one reason. Who can they trust with their children? Not school. That, that's clear. Exposing the Marxists behind the attack on America's kids. Well, that must have been a fun book to write, Liz. <laughs> Dennis, thanks so much for having me on your show. Um, you know, I say that the book has such an intense topic. It has such a visceral reaction for so many parents that that's why I named it Hide Your Children because the title was inspired by that viral YouTube video of Antoine Dodson saying, hide your kids, hide your wife. And I figured with such an intense topic as this, I should add a moment of levity to it. Because I wrote this for all the parents in the country who felt the same way that I did during COVID when we recognized, maybe for the first time, that our children are under this deliberate and relentless assault. And I wondered, where is this coming from? And why now? Why such escalation? Who is behind this? And what is their goal? So I sought to find these answers. And what I found is it actually isn't a new effort to attack our children. It's been decades and decades in the making via the left capturing many of our institutions like the media, the education system, um, religious institutions, some of them sadly. But it's escalating now in a way we've never seen it before. So what I do in the book is I name the names of the people behind this attack on our kids and then because we're in this cultural insanity right now, it means that something the Republican Party has been doing for the past 50 years isn't working because we're not winning this culture war. So I propose a solution that is different than what the Republican Party is offering for how we can finally compete in this fight, take back our institutions and protect our kids. Wow. Name the names. Are you willing to do that on air right now? Give us some Certainly. examples. Good. Go ahead. I would love to. So one of the names you may be familiar with, because ironically, she's been in the news the last week or two. The president of the American Library Association is a very influential woman by the name of Emily Drabinsky. Now, Emily Drabinsky was elected to this position last year. And the president of the American Library Association has a lot of power over what books are placed in libraries across the country. And after she won this election last year, she sent out a tweet that said, who would have thought that a lesbian Marxist could ever be elected as president of the American Library Association? Admitting her own political ideology, admitting that she's a communist, which is shocking enough as it is, because this woman is an outspoken proponent of the sexually graphic books and the books that push critical race theory on our children being in our children's libraries. But Dennis, what's more interesting is the reason that she won this seat as the president of the American Library Association is because Randy Weingarten, through her weight, Randy Weingarten being the president of the second largest teachers union in the country, threw her political weight behind Emily Drabinsky and ushered her into victory. By the way, does Randy Weingarten say that she, that she, about herself that she's a lesbian Marxist? She has not said it as clearly as Emily Drabinsky has, but that's what Marxists do, right? They oftentimes try to hide who they are. They lie about their ideology. And Randy Weingarten has also been incredibly influential in placing social emotional learning into children's classrooms across the country, which sounds pretty innocuous. It sounds nothing like a parent would look at that phrase, social emotional learning, and see a red flag. But what's packaged inside social emotional learning, it's not a topic like math or science. It's disguised as values education, teaching children how to discern right from wrong. And that's actually what it is. It teaches children a worldview, but the worldview it teaches is a Marxist worldview. It teaches children to place other people either into the category of oppressor or the category of oppressed. So if you're the head of a teacher's union and you're a huge proponent of placing social-emotional learning in children's schools, and social-emotional learning teaches children a Marxist worldview, I think it's pretty safe for us to infer yep. that she is also a Marxist. Yeah. All right. Back in a moment of, obviously, an important book. Liz Wheeler, the author, Hide Your Children. 
the Marxists behind the attack on America's kids. When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches, three pastors faced the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart. But they took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. The story uncovers those who have sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they believe in. Rediscover why the church is essential and how we can prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. You should see the movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church. SalemNow.com. Streaming at SalemNow.com. And great clouds, or white walls, or blue skies. We're going to fly, feel all right. Somebody help me feel all right tonight. Dennis Prager with Liz Wheeler commentator and podcaster. Her book is up at DennisPrager.com. How sad. It's really sad. Hide your children. Exposing the Marxists behind the attack on America's kids. So you gave the example of the head of the American Library Association. Uh, what, what is uh, Weingarten is the head of the National Federation of Teachers or National Education Association. Which one is it? Oh, the American Federation of Teachers. American Federation of Teachers. Give me more names. Yeah, so one of the things that parents have become most familiar with in the past couple years is is critical race theory. They didn't recognize it as the Marxist critical theory that it is, but they did recognize when their children were being told, if you're white, you're automatically a racist. If you're black, then you are automatically oppressed. They recognized that. They said, well, that's bad. We don't want our kids being taught that. What parents didn't realize immediately is that critical race theory is the grandchild of critical theory, which is a a piece of Marxist work or a piece of Marxist philosophy directly from the Frankfurt School. It was written by a Marxist named Max Horkheimer. It it made its way here to the United States, and um, we saw it in schools. But what's really interesting, Dennis, is a lot of people know this now. This This has become somewhat of common knowledge. But what they don't recognize is that it's not a coincidence that the transgender ideology emerged on the heels of critical race theory, that it came first critical race theory and almost immediately after the transgender ideology. And the reason that that happened is because critical race theory, when you tell white children that they're racist and there's nothing they can do to redeem themselves because this is just based on skin color and not based on their character, it creates an identity crisis in these children. They feel bad, they feel evil, and they begin to feel self-loathing. Sometimes they even begin to feel animosity towards their parents because their parents made them this way, made them white. And you have this identity crisis. It begins to fester in these young children. And then in swoops the transgender ideology, which, like, like critical race theory, the transgender ideology is the outgrowth of a neo-Marxist theory called queer theory. Queer theory uh, was written, or the founding document was written, by a woman by the name of Gail Rubin. She's alive and well in our country today. And queer theory seeks to provide a poisonous antidote, I know that's a contradiction, to critical race theory by saying to these children, listen, you can throw off this evil white identity that your parents gave you, and you can, you can dismiss being an oppressor if you put on the mantle of a marginalized identity, maybe that of a transgender person or a non-binary person or an LGBTQIA plus person. And what happens when children are first hit with critical race theory and then hit with queer theory is they end up being radically alienated from their parents, which is destructive to the family unit. And they also end up being secured as at least activists for radical leftist causes, if not outright revolutionaries for Marxist theories. And we're, we're obviously seeing this. Parents have become more familiar with it, but we're seeing this in schools, one right after the other, like a one-two punch. And the goal is, of course, the goal of all Marxists, the destruction of the family unit in order to then cause upheaval in society to overthrow capitalism. That's excellent. That's excellent to see a relationship between critical race theory and the transgender explosion among kids. So I want to review this for the listener. So 
you are, in the case of the critical race theory, you are irredeemable if you are white, but you're not irredeemable in terms of your sex. That you can change. So, in, in, and they do it often. Will, and and by the way, when you spoke, I I asked myself. I don't have the data, but I follow this avidly. It seems that the transgender phenomenon among kids is overwhelmingly white. I don't see black yeah. and Hispanic girls saying they're boys. That I'm sure Not they. The I'm Not sorry. To the same extent no, exactly. Not to the same extent as white children, and it's also divided by socioeconomic class. So you see these upper middle class white children being targeted because they're the ones that are told that the only reason that they're successful or the only reason they have what they have is because their families have built their fortunes on the back of white supremacist institution that they have white privilege. Right. So, so this this is very interesting. So I'm a white girl. And um, built-in racist, and I can, I can become acceptable if I do something to change me. And the only r- change that's really available is not ideological; it, it is human. I, I will become a boy, and then I have overthrown the patriarchy, and I have overthrown the heteronormativity and the cisgender uh, biases of my society, and then I will be accepted. Um, did I get you right? Yes, that's correct. And, and, and the children view this as they will be socially accepted, but those who are pulling the strings here, the Marxists behind this indoctrination, understand that it's not, it has nothing to do with whether the children will be accepted. It has to do with the children being alienated from their parents, uh, throwing off their identity as a child or as a white person, feeling self-loathing, and then embracing a Marxist ideology. The outcome of this is children's bodies are mutilated and their minds are captured by the radical left. And make no mistake, this is not a random assortment of nonsense that's happened to come together in the name of tolerance and inclusion. It's a deliberate plot by Marxists. Dennis, I read the founding document of queer theory and it is the most disturbing thing I've ever read. I had to put it down and walk away from it because this woman who wrote this founding document was not only advocating for the sexualization of children, which is evil, she was defending child pornography and defending outright pedophiles, saying that in 20 years, our society is going to regret imprisoning men who, quote, love underage youth. Wow. It's the most horrendous thing you've wow. ever heard. The book is Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. Liz Wheeler, we will continue. This is really an important book. I salute Liz Wheeler. Where do people find the uh, Liz Wheeler show? You can go to rumble.com slash Liz Wheeler. We love that platform because it is the only platform that doesn't censor us. Uh, you can also find the book at hideyourchildrenbook.com. I really appreciate everybody who's been buying it so far. I'm eager to hear people's feedback because I know the solution that I offer here is a little different than what the Republican Party offers. What's so your, let me know what you think. Yeah, good. What is your solution? Well, my solution is to recognize, especially in the public school system, that the reason the public school system was created in our country and it wasn't compulsory until 1852, which isn't that long ago. The reason it became compulsory in Massachusetts, first of all, was because there was an influx of immigrants coming to our country at the time, particularly Catholic immigrants. And the Protestant politicians in charge wanted these immigrant children to be indoctrinated in American values so that they'd be loyal first to America versus the country of their birth. And secondly, indoctrinated with Protestant values because of the age old battle between Protestants and Catholics. And I realized when I was reading about this that our education system actually is supposed to be an indoctrination center. Indoctrination itself is actually a a kind of nebulous, morally 
neutral concept. It's what's being indoctrinated that determines whether it's good That's or bad. That's exactly what I said when I and spoke at Moms for Liberty and PragerU's been, uh, I've been attacked in every major medium for that comment. I said, we bring doctrines. Who doesn't? Yes. The, how about the, when you teach tolerance, are you not indoctrinating? You are, of course. Of Indoctrination course. is morally neutral. Right, Listen, exactly. It's morally it. neutral. I salute you. Okay. Anyway, so what, so what is your recommendation? My recommendation is that we take back these institutions and use them to indoctrinate in things that are good and right and beautiful, that are objectively true, because they're, they're going to be controlled, these institutions, either by Democrat ideologies or by Republican beliefs and values. So, it's up to us to decide which we want to do. do if we do continue you, to play this neutral game, we're just going to lose. That's clear. I have been, I have been telling people, in, at least certainly in urban centers, to take their children out of school and homeschool them. Are, are, would you rather they keep them in school and fight on board seats? No, Dennis, I have a very based view on this. I actually think we should probably, we're this close to getting to the point where we should get rid of the public school system that's altogether. That's right, that's right. If you can possibly homeschool a- your apparently, child. Apparently yeah. so. All right, well, you're, you're, t- you're terrific. This, this is, you, you've caused me, you've forced me to read your book. And I, I, <laughs> I, no, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to do it very soon. Hide your children. Liz Wheeler, good luck. You've, uh, you've done the country a service. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com.